This series, um, Running the Gospel Race, I don't know if you remember all the way back, I think it was four weeks ago when we started talking about the food sacrifice to idols. Uh, really, Paul then, beginning of chapter 8, talked about how knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. How things that we know don't necessarily build each other up, but it's the love that really builds one another up. Um, then he talked about the rights of his, uh, his apostleship and how he laid them down so that he could, um, he could preach the gospel for free. And then we talked about how difficult it is to run the gospel race. It's not an easy thing um, that we really need to train ourselves for it. And then he talks about, uh, in this chapter, uh, beginning of chapter 10, that we shouldn't be complacent in, in running our race. And I often wonder what it's like to be part of that crowd about 3,500 years ago that came out of Egypt, of Exodus. It was a time of God's unprecedented blessing. If you imagine, Abraham was called, but he didn't actually make it to the promised land. Actually, the little piece of land that he actually got at the very end was one, a little plot of land that, that, that he bought so that he could bury his wife in the promised land. He did not see much of the promise being fulfilled at all. Both Isaac and Jacob also died without seeing any significant fulfillment made to Abraham and then repeated to them um, again and again. And God would show up time to time, and Jacob, remember, wrestled with the angel of the Lord. But Exodus was a wholly different thing. It was an unprecedented spectacle. And God led them through the pillar of cloud, a fire, and, 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 and a day and night. When they faced the Red Sea, God opened the Red Sea so they could walk through the dry land. And they ate food of the angels every day. Um, and it was particular. It wasn't particularly tasty, but this food appeared in the middle of the desert every day, and fed six hundred thousand men plus women and children. What's more, in the desert, God provided water. Uh, in verse four, He talks about that through the rock that was struck, through the rock that was cleft for them. Nothing else in the wilderness could survive that harsh condition, but 600,000 men on foot and plus women and children drank water every day. And these things, Paul says, had spiritual dimension. Look at the language that Paul uses to describe the experience. So look at verse 2. They were baptized into Moses, he says. As they came out of Egypt, they became a people who, people of Moses, people who uh, became, un, uh, who, who lived under the leadership of Moses. Um, just as when we're baptized, we become people of Christ, people who live under the Lordship of Christ. And Paul says that there was spiritual dimension to that food and water as well. They ate the spirit, same spiritual food, he says, and drank the same spiritual um, drink. And they, drink, they drank from the spiritual rock, he says later on, which is Christ. It says as if they had a shadow of what actually we have, the body and the blood of Christ. And they were incredibly blessed. And we're justified in thinking that God must have been very pleased with them. And I often think to myself, if I were with them, 
Of course, I would have a solid faith. Um, but that's not actually what Paul says about about um, about the Israelites. Um, look to verse five. It says, "Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them." I, when I went to England, I had to do some cultural um, learning. I found that people, um, I found this British understatement. When they say it's not bad, that means actually it was really good. <laughs> and this too, in many ways, is an understatement. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. We know that this is an understatement because of what he says right after. He says, then their bodies were scattered over the desert. Only a handful of the people who were with them made it to the promised land. In fact, a generation of people died in the desert and their bodies were scattered all over the desert. And this isn't just a history lesson. Irrelevant to our lives. Look to verse 6. He then goes on to say, Now these things occurred as an example to keep us from our setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things are written, recorded for us. And remember, if you think about that, it makes sense because Paul's not writing to the Israelites. Paul's writing mainly to the Corinthian Christians made up of Israelites, but also as many as Gentile Christians. He's saying that the Gentiles, to the, even to the Gentiles, the Old Testament is their history. It was part of their history. These, it's, part of, it's, it's written for them, but it's also now for us as well. The Old Testament is our history, and these things are written for us. But perhaps you're not still convinced that this is a relevant passage for you. After all, Paul says he's writing these things to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. But some of, us, some of us think, well, our hearts are okay. As we look to our lives, we're okay. Um, in fact, some of us have grown up in the Christian family all of our lives. Some of, were, some of us were baptized as babies. And I mean, as I think about my experience, I, I probably went to, Koreans do this morning prayer thing at 5.30 in the morning. I went to more morning prayer in the womb of my mom than I, I did as, as I grew up in high school. I grew up in the church most of my life. And I, I can't remember the time when I, can't, I didn't understand what salvation in Jesus meant. Maybe many of us are like that. Most of us have received the blessing um, through our entire lives. And most of us receive the blessing, through, uh, 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 the, the grace through the means of Lord's Supper, as we will later on this morning. Israelites knew the, uh, God's presence through the pillar of cloud, but when we called on the name of the Lord and turned to him, we were anointed with the Holy Spirit. God is with us. God is with all of us individually. And some of us even speak in tongue. Some of us prophesy and heal and interpret tongues. Some of you have the gifts of serving and teaching, encouragement, generosity, leadership, mercy. Some of us know the presence of God deeply, individually, personally. And all of us are gifted with the presence of Christ. 
So most of us don't think that we fit in the category of people who think we're in danger. But look at what Paul writes in verse 12. He says, so if you think, if you think you are standing in, uh, standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Those of us who are questioning their faith, those of us are, who are on the shaky ground, well, you should be concerned. But those of us who think that we are, we stand on firm ground, that we're not like others, pay attention to this passage. To pay attention to the warnings here. Pay attention. This Sunday, this isn't just a history lesson. These things are recorded for us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So don't be complacent. Their bodies were scattered all over the desert. And this is so because sin is a serious matter. Idolatry, verse 7, sexual immorality, verse 8, testing the Lord, verse 9, grumbling, verse 10, all have serious consequences. Do not be idolaters, verse 7, as some of them were. When Moses was receiving the law on Mount Sinai, the Israelites melted all the gold that they had brought out of Egypt and made a golden calf and bowed down to them. As Moses was receiving the law, in the mountain, and God was angry with them, and Moses had to plead with God that God would not just just uh, destroy all the people who just came out of Egypt. And verse eight recalls the story of Numbers twenty-five one through nine, when the Israelites, or Israel, uh, Israelite men, were engaged in in uh, sexual immorality with Moabite women, and then they ended up worshiping the idols of Moab. And as a result, 23,000 were killed. Verse 9 recalls people complaining to Moses about being in the desert. And they want to go back to Egypt. And they were killed by snakes. Verse 10 recalls perhaps the story of Numbers, 20, uh, Numbers 14. Maybe about Korah's rebellion that led to an additional 14,700 deaths. In all of it, Paul says sin is serious. It comes with real consequences in our lives. And I don't think he's talking about the loss of salvation here. For nowhere is suggested that the Israelites lost salvation. In fact, if you think about Moses, even Moses did not enter into the promised land, but he's still revered as the, the, the leader of, uh, of Israel. And, and we, uh, he, was with, he is with God, we know. But physical death, loss of blessing in this life, and also the blessing, the crown that we talked about last week, that we might receive in the new creation, is all lost because of sin. If you think that your salvation is secure so that you don't have to take your sin seriously, see the consequences here. They were killed and destroyed. They had no chance of receiving the crown that they were to receive. They incurred God's anger. We, even with our unprecedented blessings, the kind which Peter says, the angels had longed to see, 
We are all in perilous position if we uh, at point uh, if we allow ourselves to indulge uh, to, uh, to to thinking that sin does not matter. That because we have lived our lives, because uh, in Christ and because we have known Christ, because we were baptized, because we receive communion, because we do good things, we come to church, because we do all the things that we do. Um, because maybe when we remember the moment when our hearts were strangely warmed and we, we have come to know Christ. Uh, because we have spiritual experiences that we are guaranteed to win the crown of glory. That our sin does not matter. We are in grave danger, Paul says. Don't take sin lightly. God does not. Um, and it is true that if you think about this passage, Paul was talking about this whole discussion came out of the discussion on um, food that's sacrificed to idol, what meat they would eat every day. What seems to us a seemingly trivial matter. And it wasn't. And it is true that the trap of sin really is everywhere. Whether we get drunk once in a while. Whether we stay overnight at our girlfriend's house or boyfriend's house. What we do individually, if it affects no one else, you say. Pornography in privacy, it matters. Whether we offer bribe or not. Whether we fudge our expense sheet in our work. Whether we get impatient with our colleagues our temper flaring with our children or with our parents. Sin is serious and God takes these things seriously. And the best description of sin from the Bible in my mind is Genesis 4, uh, 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it to an undisciplined, to an unthinking Christian, to the complacent. Sin crouches at the door. Its desire is not just to deter us, to harm us, but to to have us, to master us. And I want you to know once again that these warnings are an act of love. The tolerance in, one, uh, in our modern society is one of the highest virtue. But tolerance can be a good rule for the society. But it cannot be the rule of a family. Parents do not merely tolerate their children. Parents love their children. And love requires discipline. It requires punishment. Never to cause harm, never to mean harm, but to correct, to allow them to be better people. The worst thing that a parent can do for a child is not to punish him for anything. To let them indulge in their selfishness. These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us, for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages to come in verse 11. So sin is crouching at every door. And if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed with the idea that sin is crouching at the every door, 
You must balance your thinking with also the assurance that God gives us in verse 13. First, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We live in an unparalleled development, in an age of unparalleled development of technology, unprecedented, um, uh, unprecedented amount of information, new uh, physical and emotional diseases, natural disasters, human warfare, market system. I think, as I think about the market system um, right now, it is complicated as it has ever been. And there are new challenges to a Christian every day. At every corner, it is difficult to imagine a life untainted with sin. But the word of God says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Although we live in a different time and era, the temptation of today's Christians are the same as the temptations of the old. The external circumstances may differ, but spiritual dynamics remain the same. The circumstances that tempt us to sin are never qualitatively differ, different from those who, are, uh, who uh, uh, from uh, from those uh, which God's people every day have faced in the ages of past. The complexities of living in this world cannot be our excuse for giving in to our temptations. But the assurance, I think, is bigger than just to say that our temptations are the same as the, people, uh, the temptations of the people of the past. Paul goes on to say then, God is faithful in our temptations. It is God who is, who is faithful to us, God who will help us, and he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. Whether you are a businessman, a woman in Hong Kong, with temptations of giving and receiving bribery, spending your time alone and vulnerable, uh, vulnerable to sexual temptations in your long over uh, weeks of trips uh, and road trips, or student who is pressured to pre- uh, plagiarize, or, um, or if you're, whether you're a professor um, tempted to uh, gossip and be involved in, in, in politics there, whether you're a wife or a husband, um, tempted beyond you can imagine because of your, um, because of your children or husband. Whoever you are, God is faithful and God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There is always an escape hatch, a way to persevere without sinning in whatever difficult situation we find ourselves. But this isn't a passage that says everything will be magically okay. This isn't a Disney movie. This is the Bible, and Bible is relentlessly realistic. And this is how he ends this section in verse 13, the last sentence there. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. We all want the way out to be an escape hatch, something that makes everything okay, a magic wand that changes the whole scenery, as in a cartoon. Well, if Paul had simply written, he will also provide a way out, you might expect that. You might be justified in expecting that. But that's not how Paul ends. He added, 
He will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. So you can stand up under it. God will give you the strength, the peace, the hope, and the joy to stand up under in all that pressure. To live in this modern world with all its temptations around us and complexities that make our thinking clouded is difficult. But it's not impossible. For God is faithful. For God is with us. For God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Because God will provide us with the strength, wisdom, and the joy, hope, so that we can stand up under it. So as I finish, just a reminder, once again, complacency perhaps is um, and a tinge of arrogance characterize middle-class Christianity. Most of us, if not um, many of us, if not most of us, have grown up in the Christian family and have had various experiences that have confirmed our standing with God. But if we rely on those, if we think that we stand on firm ground because of those experiences, because of what we know, and if you think that we know how to live in this world without falling, be careful. It is only Christ. It is only constantly looking to Christ that will allow us to be firm, that will allow us to run this gospel race. So we may live a holy life in this complicated and fallen world. So let's look to Christ. Amen.